If uh, you did not receive a study sheet when you came in, why don't you raise your hand real quick, and we'll get one of those for you. And while our ushers are getting those for those folks that uh, failed to get one, let's open our Bibles today to what is, I think we're going to find over the course of the next several weeks, an absolutely incredible chapter in the Word of God. In fact, I'm calling this the greatest event in human history, and the reason that I call it that is because that's exactly what it is. Revelation chapter 19, and man, I wish that we could do the entire chapter all in in one sitting, but I don't think the part of your body where you sit could handle all of that, and uh, much less your mind be able to comprehend the absolute incredibleness of what is being disclosed here. We'll try our best today to get through the first seven verses. And let's look at it together. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1. He says, And after these things... Now, let me just remind you of what these things are. The these things is what has taken place in chapter 17 and chapter 18. And what has happened in those two chapters is Babylon has fallen. Judgment, the judgment of God has come against Babylon. In chapter 17, we saw that it was religious Babylon or mystery Babylon. It was that that place that started at the tower, of course, of Babylon, of Babel, and has made its way all the way down and is present on the earth right now in the 21st century, and is growing in popularity, and what we find from the Word of God will grow in popularity in the next several years as all of these events begin to to unfold on this planet. So it was the destruction and the judgment of religious or mystery Babylon in chapter 17. In chapter 18, we saw that it was the judgment and the destruction of commercial Babylon, or when God came against that governmental aspect of the the Antichrist kingdom during the tribulation period. So he says in chapter 19, And after these things, after that destruction of Babylon, he says, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia. Alleluia. The, the word Alleluia is found four times in the New Testament. All four of them are going to be in this one passage that we're looking at today. Now, it's found in the Old Testament. The word Alleluia is the Greek rendering of the word, of course, Hallelujah, which comes from two words, Halal, which means to praise, and Yah, which is Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. And of course, in the Old Testament, Jehovah, that word is rendered in our King James Bible, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Every time you see that in all caps, it's in reference to Jehovah. That's the Hebrew word. The word means, praise Jehovah, or praise the Lord. So after the destruction, he's we, the people in heaven... In a great voice, say, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. For He hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Alleluia. And a great or a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You know what this is? 
This is us singing the Hallelujah Chorus. This is where this comes from. That's where Handel's Messiah. This is the whole, the whole deal is about that kingdom coming when we finally sing Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come and His wife hath made herself ready. And then from there, of course, there is a marriage feast, a marriage supper that we have a part in. And from there, he begins to explain just how it is that he sets up this kingdom where he rules and reigns on the earth. And it, it gives in great detail, and we'll see that in the, this in the next several weeks, how heaven's going to open and he is going to come back to this planet and he is going to set things right on this planet. It is, without a doubt, the greatest event in human history. Now, let's just spend just a, a couple of minutes. It's been a long time since we've actually done this. And let's spend just a couple of minutes just trying to get our bearings, to make sure we understand exactly where we are in the book of Revelation because we're, we're turning another corner in our study today. Now, when we started this study of the book of Revelation... What we be began to see is there's 22 chapters in this book. We've got a long way to go. When we started, you can see this is the 144th week. It's taken us a little while to get through just what we've come through to, to this point. But we look at this, this book that has confused people through the centuries. It is confusing to people who pick it up and try to make sense out of it in, in our day and age. And quite honestly... There's a lot of, there's a lot of junk that goes along with the whole presentation of the book of Revelation. So we've got to make sure as we began this study, or we begin any study of the Word of God, we've got to make sure that we are utilizing the key principles of Bible study that God gives us in His Word. And one of those is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, where God says this. This is how He tells us that we must approach His book. He t says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, there's several principles that we can glean out of that. The first thing that God is telling us that we've got to do when we approach his book is we have got to study. We've got to give a very diligent study, and through our study, what we're seeking to do is we are seeking to find where God has made His divisions in His book. We must make sure, first of all, that we study. Secondly, we must make sure that we rightly divide the word of truth. And so what we did as we began our study of the book of Revelation is we tried to apply the principle of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 to the 22 chapters in this book of Revelation. And what we found as we gave diligent study to the Word of God, we found that there was an event that happens two times in the book of Revelation. Heaven opens two times in this book. In Chapter 4, in verse 1, heaven opens and somebody goes up. In chapter 19, in verse 11, heaven opens, and of course you know this, somebody comes what? Somebody comes down. Somebody going up is, is an event that we call the rapture. Somebody coming down is an event that we refer to as the second coming. Okay, so once we begin to see that, okay, heaven opens in those two places. So we have the placement of the rapture. We have the placement of the second coming in this book. And so what we find is that that event, the event of heaven opening, it actually divides the book into three sections. What is interesting is when we go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, and we cross-reference that, with Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, what we find is this. When John received this revelation, what he says in verse 10 of chapter 1 is that he was catapulted forward in time to a time that is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that period of time that encompasses the tribulation and, of course, culminates with the second coming and the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. So he is catapulted 
Forward in time, he said, and from that perspective, he was told to write in three tenses. He was told in verse 19 to write the things which have been, the things that are, and the things that shall be. And so when we begin to see where he was when he actually got this revelation from the standpoint of someone standing out at the time of the tribulation, what we find is that that which is past is chapters 1, 2, and 3. The present is chapters 4 through 19. And the future is chapter 20, 21, and 22. So when you begin to see where the rapture is, and you see where the second coming is, and you begin to see those perspectives of the past, present, and the future, it's just really easy to begin to understand the book of Revelation and understand where you are. Chapters 1 through 3 is the church age. It's divided into seven periods. We're right now living in the seventh and final of those periods of church history. So chapter 1 to 3 is the church age. Chapter 4 and verse 1, as we've already talked about, is the rapture. And then chapters 4 through 19 is the tribulation. Again, we've talked about Revelation 19 and verse 11, where heaven opens. That's the second coming. And then chapter 20, the future events are the millennium. Chapter 21, the new heaven, the new earth. And then chapter 22, eternity. And you see, it's really pretty simple how this book lines out and lets you know exactly where you are at any given point so that you don't get yourself messed up. Now, there's another area where people do tend to get themselves messed up. The bulk of this book, of course, as you see, is lined out in chapters 4 through 19. There are The bulk of the book is in this seven-year period that we refer to as the tribulation period. It's the time that Jesus said, there's never been a time like it before it. He said, there'll never be a time like it after it. It is an incredible time of judgment on this planet. And the way that people get themselves messed up is they don't understand that what takes place in these chapters is God brings you four times through the tribulation period. There are four accounts of the tribulation from chapter 4 to chapter 19. Four accounts of the tribulation. And of course, the tribulation culminates with the second coming of Christ. We've talked about this in times past. The reason God brings you through that event four times is He brought you through the first coming of Christ four times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What He does is He brings you through four accounts of His second coming in Revelation chapter 4 through 19. And we saw that He does that through the figures of the, first of all, the opening of the seven seals. And then secondly, we saw the sounding of the seven trumpets. And then thirdly, the revealing of seven personalities. And then fourthly, through the pouring of seven vials. Okay, now now understand something. As we've been going through these four accounts, the opening of the seven seals, sounding of the seven trumpets, the revealing of the seven personalities, the pouring of the seven vials, what God has done is He has allowed us to see this from man's perspective. The whole focal point from chapter 6 to 19 has been all about what's going to be taking place on the earth. Now, back in chapter 4, remember when somebody went up at the rapture? What, what John does is he takes chapter 4 and chapter 5 to explain what is taking place in heaven immediately after the rapture of the church. Then when he gets to chapter 6, he begins to explain while that is taking place at, on, in heaven, the tribulation period is taking place on the earth. And you remember back in chapter 5, the voice cried out, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And we saw that that book or that scroll with the seven seals was the title deed of the earth. And the scripture says that no one in heaven was found worthy. And everyone begins to weep. 
And then all of a sudden, standing at the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ stands to his feet because he is the one through his shed blood and through his resurrection has purchased back the title deed of the earth. He created it. He handed it to Adam. Adam, through his fall, lost that. And through his blood, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he took it back. And in heaven, we begin to rejoice as he opens those seven seals. But as he opens them, all of the judgment begins to be poured out on the earth. And now when we come to Revelation chapter 19, now, all of that, all of the tribulation period, it's over. And now, the score has been settled. And now, we say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And now listen, to really understand chapter 19, What you've got to understand, the reason that this is the greatest event in human history is, first of all, this is the event to which all of God's Word is pointing. Do you understand that this morning? This event that we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 19, this is the event to which this entire book is pointing Most of the world, and and you know what, you're probably going to need to take your notes right there. You'll definitely know when we come to the second page, okay? Do it at the the bottom of this one, okay? And I appreciate your diligence there. Listen, most of the world, y'all, does not have a clue as to what this book is really about. I mean, it is just an absolute closed book to them. The scripture even says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, and he can't know them because they are spiritually discerned. His problem is he's got a dead spirit, and it's a closed book to him. But what is amazing is that even those who do know the Lord Jesus Christ and have been born again, somehow, in the midst of everything that we see in the Word of God, we begin to lose what this book is really all about, and because maybe it's, maybe it's the, the time in which we live, God calls us the Laodiceans. The period of history in, in which we're living in these last days of church history, it's the time that is characterized as by the rights of the people. That's what the word Laodicea means, the rights of the people. It's all about me. It's all about my. It's all about mine. And maybe that's part of the reason that we have such a hard time Understanding what this book is really all about is because we think that this book is really all about me. And so we come to this book and we see that our sin separates us from God. We see that God in His grace and mercy that we've talked about already today, He laid Himself down as a sacrifice. God Himself became a human being taking on flesh and blood and died to take away our sin on the cross. And we look at that and we say, that was wonderful. And oh my goodness, could there be anything to us that is more wonderful than that? Than the, hello? <laughs> then that the God of the universe would sacrifice His only begotten Son for us? And the Bible says that He became sin. And because He was, man, He was beaten and nailed to that cross, they took the crown of thorns and jammed it onto his head. He was brutalized. It was because he had become sin and he died. And on that cross, he's hanging and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's because he had become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And listen, I cannot remove myself from that event. I cannot remove that from my thinking when I go to the Word of God. It brings tears to my eyes. It brings joy to my heart. Every time I think about the fact that God would sacrifice His Son for me. But now listen, you've got to understand, that is not what this book is about though. This book is not about that day when God watched His only begotten Son brutalized. 
Do you understand? That was the most difficult day in God's eternal existence. It was a day that grieved his heart. He wept as he watched our sin brutalize his son. Listen, that is not the day that this book is about. The day that this book is about is the day when Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, finally gets the glory that He deserves to get. And that day is not going to be until He sets up His kingdom on the, the earth. And you know what? That's what Revelation 19 is all about. And you know what? From beginning to end, this entire book is pointing to that day. And man, I wish we had the time today to just break this thing out for you. We really don't. But, but just grab a couple of uh, uh, things as a reminder for some of you, as new truth for, for others of you. You go to the very first chapter in, in the Bible, and what the Scripture teaches is that the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth day. Six days of creation, the Scripture says, in the evening and the morning were that day. He comes to the seventh day. And if you're a, a Bible student at all and you're looking at what you're reading, what you're going to first of all notice is there's no evening and morning accounted for on that seventh day. But what it says is on that seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Does anybody think that he rested because he was worn out from speaking the worlds into existence? Whew. Well, he's been a tough, long road these past six days. I've been speaking, you know, and creating these things. And so already, we've got some major things going on. No evening and morning, he's resting. And it says on that seventh day, what he did is he blessed that seventh day. And it says that he sanctified it. That means he set it apart. You know what God did? He says, now, this seventh day, this is mine. This is my day. This is the Lord's day. Okay? You go to Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, and it says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. In other words, you can miss a lot of stuff. Don't miss this one. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. Okay, we don't want to be ignorant about that. So why don't we do this? With those first seven days that we found in the Bible, let's go plug that little equation into that. And you know what you find out? That God is spelling out that there will be basically 6,000 years of human history. But that seventh day, it's going to be a day on this planet that's going to last for a thousand years. And in that day, there will be no evening and no morning because the Lamb will be the light. It's going to be a thousand year rest. You know what it's going to actually be, y'all? If you check out verse 7, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be a thousand-year honeymoon that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have with His wife, with His bride. And right from the very beginning of the Bible, God says, let me tell you what this thing's about. It's all about my day. It's all about a time when a kingdom is going to be coming to this planet. And oh my goodness, y'all, all the way through the Old Testament. If we had the time today, what we could do is we could just begin to walk through the entire Word of God and I could begin to show you how this entire book is pointing to Revelation chapter 19. In Genesis chapter 6, it's the days of Noah. Jesus comes on the planet and he says, now listen, if you want to know what it's going to be like when the event of all events takes place, you know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like the days of, like the days of Noah. And he comes to chapter 14, verses 1 to 10, there's a battle taking place. And if you just go check out this battle, what you'll find out, it's foreshadowing another battle that's going to take place at the second coming of Christ. Genesis chapter 19, it's the days of Lot. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to know what it's going to be like at the second coming of Christ, it's going to be like the days of 
the days of Lot. You come to Genesis 49, it's the second coming. You move into the book of Exodus, chapter 4 through 10, and you know what you're going to find? All of the plagues that are going to show up again during the tribulation period at the, just before the second coming of Christ. It's all through the book of Exodus. It's in Leviticus chapter 26. Numbers chapter 21 to 24 is all about the second coming of Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28, 29, 30, 32, and 33. All about the second coming of Christ. How about the book of Joshua? The book of Jesus in the Old Testament. There, you know what? He, he goes from one battle to another. Go check out those battles, y'all. You know what it is? It's the second coming of Christ. And again, we could go through every book of the Bible. In fact, one out of 25, every 25 verses in the Bible is pointing to this event that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 19. If you don't know the, what, the, that the Bible is all about that, you go to the book of Psalms, and you know what? I look at that now. And before I began to understand what this book was about, I go and read the Psalms now, and I, I think to myself, what did I think this was about all of those years? Because one right after another, it's all about the second coming of Christ and He'll go through this thing and then He's going to have this musical rest that comes in the Psalms classified for us by the word Selah. It's a musical rest. Hello? It's all pointing to a thousand year rest on this planet where the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign. You go to the book of Isaiah. How could you read the book of Isaiah without knowing that this entire book is about the day of the Lord? You go to the book of Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Joel. You know what it's all about, y'all? It's all about Revelation chapter 19. It's all pointing there. You come to the book of Zechariah. Let's, let's do it, shall we? Next to the last book, or right in there close, find Matthew. And, and turn to chapter 12, would you? Get to Matthew. You work your way through Malachi. And then you're in Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter 12. And look at verse 3. It says, And in that day, in verse 4, In that day, verse 6, In that day, verse 8, In that day, verse 9, And it shall come to pass, In that day, verse 11, In that day, chapter 13, verse 1, In that day, verse 2, And it shall come to pass, In that day, verse 4, And it shall come to pass, In that day, Chapter 14, verse 6, and it shall come to pass in that day. Verse 8, and it shall be in that day. Verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. Verse 20, in that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. Verse 21, look at the end of the verse, and in that day. And you know what? I mean, you wouldn't have to be real inquisitive to just after all of those in that day, 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 just ask the simple question, what day? And so God wanted you to ask that. And so look at chapter 14 and verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord. That day. What day is that? It's the day that He blessed. It's the day that He sanctified and set apart in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 3 and said, This day is mine. This thousand year day, it's mine. And look at chapter 4 of the next book. The very last book. The very last chapter. You know, you know how the Old Testament ends, y'all? For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. And you know what it is? It's the day of the Lord. Right now, according to Revel or Romans chapter 13, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Philippians chapter 2. You know what? We are living right now in a biblical nighttime. Right now, you and I live in a biblical nighttime, but the day of the Lord is coming when the capital S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, is going to rise on this planet. And when He does, it's going to be daytime. It's going to be the day of the Lord. And the entire book, from beginning to end, is first and foremost not about me and all that God's done for me. It's all about Him. And it's all about His Son finally getting the glory that He deserves. So first of all, Revelation 19 is all about the event to which all of God's Word is pointing. Number two, now we can turn. Thank you. It is the event for which all of God's people are praying. All of God's people are praying. It's the event to which all of God's Word is pointing. It's the event for which all of God's people are praying. And let me take you back to Luke chapter 11, if I could. Luke chapter 11. And it's interesting, y'all. The disciples spent quite a bit of time with the Lord Jesus Christ and experienced the life of God in their very midst. What is kind of interesting is as you begin to just step back from this thing, what you'll find is that the disciples had heard Jesus preach the most incredible sermons that have ever been preached on this planet because God Himself was preaching them. That's good preaching, y'all. They had heard Him preach incredible sermons. They had seen Him do incredible miracles. Because again, He was God in a human body doing this stuff. And He can do anything He jolly well pleases. Walk on water, no problem. Heal blind eyes, open deaf ears, feed thousands of people with a little kid's lunch or without a little kid's lunch. It doesn't matter. He can do whatever He jolly well pleases because He's God. And they had seen Him do these incredible miracles. They had seen Him preach incredible sermons. And they never said, Lord, would you teach us to preach like that? That was awesome. They never said, Lord, would you teach us to do miracles like that? That was incredible. But in Luke chapter 11, they heard him pray. And John, the beloved disciple, the one that was no doubt the most sensitive, came up afterwards and said, Now that was incredible. Would you teach us to pray like that? And so he says, okay. And so he begins to teach his disciples, he begins to teach us to pray. And he says, all right, when you pray, pray like this. Pray our Father. And and you know what? If you understand your past, and according to John chapter 8 and verse 44, all of us that were born into this world, we were of our father, the our father, the devil. We were born into the wrong family. But you see, when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what happens for you is you change families. And God becomes your father. And you know what? It's the most incredible truth in the world, man that the God of this universe would be my Father. And you see, Satan knows the importance of that term and the fact that God wants to be to us a Father. And so you know what he does? He takes our earthly fathers, and for the most part, he makes that term such an ugly thing for us. And man, what he's trying to do is distort our thinking So that when we come and God says, I want to be your father, we have to... And so he says, our father, which art in heaven. See, this one ain't like your earthly father. This one is a perfect father. Your heavenly father. And you know what? I, I stink as a father. I am so full of mistakes and 
all, all of that. But man, I'm just telling you, I don't want to be that. Man, the, one of the greatest joys in my life is being able to have two people that call me their father. And man, I want the absolute best for them. Man, it, it, you, you fathers know what I'm talking about. But you know what? Even though I want to be everything that I can possibly be to my kids, you know what? It's impossible for me as an earthly father to know everything that they're going through and that they need. I'm just one person, and I can't be everywhere that sometimes they need me to be. And you know what? Even if I could be, I don't have the power within me to do what needs to be done. But you see, this Father, our Heavenly Father, He's omniscient. And He knows everything that could possibly be known in all of our lives. And what's better than that is He knows that and He says, and I'll be right there with you. Because you see, He's not only omniscient, He's omnipresent. And while He's being with me through all of the circumstances of my life where I most desperately need Him, at the same time, this Heavenly Father can be with you, going with you through everything that you're facing and everything that you're going through. And you know what? In being there, He's got all the power that is necessary to do anything that needs to be done. Because He is, as we saw in verse 6, He is omnipotent. And so listen, we come to our Father realizing that relationship we have with Him and realizing who He is as the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God. And after realizing that, as we're coming to Him in prayer, you, you know what the natural result of that is? To hallow His name. To worship Him. To begin to lift Him up. And we begin to praise Him for the attributes that He possesses. We praise Him for the relationship that He has allowed us to have with Him, whereby we can come to Him and call Him our Father. But as we're worshiping Him, what is just the natural result is that in giving Him that glory, we begin to understand how that on this planet, right now today, y'all, this omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, holy, loving, merciful God who is our Father. Do you understand today? He is blasphemed by most of humanity. He is defied by most of humanity. The entire world reproaches his name. And you see, when you really begin to worship Him and hallow Him because of who He is, you begin to desire for Him to get the glory that He deserves. And you understand as a child of God, He will not get that glory until the kingdom comes. And so you know what the natural response is? And this is how Jesus taught us to pray. As you begin to understand what it is to worship Him and to love Him, Pray for the kingdom to come. That time when His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You pray for that time. And listen, all of the people who truly know God have something that burns in their gut. For that day, for the day that the whole book is pointing to, the day that is to God, the day above every other day, the day when His Son finally gets the glory. And how could it be, y'all, that we would claim to know Him and be true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth and be those that love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and yet we don't give two flips about His kingdom coming to this earth? You know what? You know why 
we're living in a period of time to where most believers don't care about that kingdom coming. It's really pretty simple. We're too caught up with our own kingdom. Which is one of the the greatest incongruencies in the entire world. Because you see, according to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, in order to come to Christ, we've all, we all come the same way. We come to a point, Jesus said, that whosoever is going to come, you come denying self. You see, the Spirit of God has got to bring you to the point. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, listen, the way to get in, is the Spirit of God begins to convict you, the Bible says, to reprove you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What it does is it brings you to a point of desperation to where you understand that your problem is you. Your problem is self. And you, in your desperation, understand that self can't get you out of the problem that self created. And so what you do is you come to Christ denying self. And if you don't come that way, you don't come. Regardless of what you call yourself, we all get in the same way. It begins with the Spirit of God bringing us to the point to where we put up our hands and we deny ourselves. But it seems that what happens to most believers is we're brought to that impasse. And for at least a momentary period of time, we understand our problem with self and we deny self and we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not too awful long before we take Him off of the throne of our heart, the throne of our life, if you will, And we take self and put self back on the throne of our little kingdom once again. And once again, life revolves around me. Life revolves around self. And I start to see everything once again in terms of me, in terms of my, in terms of mine. But do you understand, y'all, what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 says? Listen. That Jesus died for all so that those of us who live, listen, should not henceforth live unto themselves. Let me just say it before you get I, I quoted it so you'd know where I was getting it. You know what it's saying? The reason Jesus died is so that we would stop living for our self, sitting on our thrones in our little kingdom. We, listen, according to Colossians chapter 1, we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and have been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. The theme of our life now is all about His kingdom. He rules and reigns in us, and that's His plan. And we are supposed to be that place on the earth where He rules and reigns like He's going to rule and reign when He actually comes in His kingdom. But that kingdom right now is the individual believer. But our problem is, we want to keep living for our self. And he said, that's why Jesus died, is so we would stop doing that. Not so that we could have a nice little comfy existence when we croak. But so that we would stop living right now for me, my, mine. That's why he died. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, 
Listen, you know that you were not redeemed with silver and gold, listen, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, what he's saying is, every single one of us that were born into this world, we received a vain manner of living from our fathers. We got it very honestly. We were born into this world, and what we learned by tradition from being born into this world from our earthly fathers, every one of us came into this world with this vain manner of life where self sits on the throne, and self wants what self wants, and self wants to be exalted, and self wants to be promoted, and self wants to be gratified. Self wants to feel good. Self wants to to be exalted so that other people think great things about us. And he says, don't you get it? That's why he shed his precious blood to redeem you from that vain manner of life that you used to have. So how could we go back and put self on the throne? And what I'm trying to get you to see is when Jesus taught us to pray, this was the theme of it, man. That we would be so in love with Him as our Father, so absolutely captivated by Him because of His attributes. That we would worship Him and that worship and that love would flow into this passion for Him to get the glory that He deserves and will not receive until He sets up His kingdom on the earth. And it's everything that Revelation chapter 19 is talking about. It's the event to which all of God's Word is pointing. It's the event to which all of God's people are praying. And then thirdly, it's the event to which all of God's hosts will be praising. It's the event at which all of God's hosts will be praising. And now let's Begin in chapter 19. And and now listen. My read and coming to chapter 19 is that unless you understood that this whole book was pointing to this, and unless you understood that all of God's people through all of the centuries have been praying about this event, I, I felt that we'd never really appreciate what this is really about without seeing that. And I know you're looking at your study sheet going, man, there ain't no way that he's going to do this in any kind of amount of time. And you're right. And so you know what? I I just want to give you one point, okay? And and so just relax. Hang on this one point. We ain't going anywhere, y'all. The rapture hadn't taken place yet, okay? We'll just come back next week. And we'll see the, the rest of the Hallelujah Chorus, okay? But would you hang with me for, for one point? Can you shake yourself and do that? All right. It's the event at which all of God's hosts will be praising. And when I talk about God's hosts, I'm talking about everybody that is going to inhabit heaven. Man, I think it's going to be the cherubim, the seraphim, the four beasts, the angels, the Old Testament saints, the church age saints, the tribulation saints. That's what I think is going on here in verse 1. John shows us first of all, letter A on your outline. We're going to be praising. But we will praise Him for very specific things. First of all, we will praise Him because His salvation has been fully exemplified. We will praise Him 
Because his salvation has been fully exemplified. Now look at verse 1. John says, and after these things, and again, that's the destruction of religious and commercial Babylon. I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Now, I'm, I'm talking to most of the people that are in this room who have been recipients of salvation. And by that, what we mean is that you have come to the point where the Spirit of God has convicted you of your sin, of His righteousness, and the fact that because of those two things, judgment is inevitable. You're brought to a place to where you understand there's nothing you can do. You call upon what God did on your behalf through Jesus Christ, You invite Him to come into your life, and the Bible teaches that we are born again. He moves into our dead spirit, and He brings it to life. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And it's a a glorious reality. When we come to that point, to where we call on the name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says we are placed in Him. And at that point, in our soul and in our spirit, now that's very key that you understand that. When we are placed in Christ, it's a spiritual placement. And so our souls and our spirits Undergo a transformation whereby old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We call that justification. Okay? It's a part of our salvation. Our soul and our spirit is made new. However, when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, your body did not change. You still live in that same nasty pile of clay that you used to live in, that used to do all the dirty, rotten stuff that it used to do, and it still has a memory and still has a desire to do a lot of those dirty, stinking, rotten things that it used to do before you knew the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And because nothing happened to your body, now you need to understand, something is going to happen to your body. It is going to be glorified. And you see, that's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says the things that it says. Okay? The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay? What happens when a believer dies? And we had one of our brothers that was sitting in this church last Sunday night. And I think all of us are aware that Dale Hostetler went home to be with the Lord on sometime early Monday morning. And you know what happened? He drew his last breath. And his soul and his spirit departed out of him and went into the presence of the Lord. And that earthly shell that he lived in stayed right there in his basement. And on Friday, we took that shell, that body, and we put it into the ground. And that body right now is awaiting It's glorification, it's awaiting, it's redemption. There's coming a day of resurrection. And the Bible says that at the rapture, what's going to take place is the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, he's already told you that he's going to bring the dead in Christ with him. What do you mean they're going to rise first and yet they're going to be with him when he comes? The soul and spirit is going to be with him. And the dead in Christ will rise first. You know why they rise first? They have six feet further to come. And then all of us who are on the earth are caught up together to meet the Lord and the souls and spirits of those that have come with Him to meet the Lord in the air. And we all receive a glorified body because 1 Corinthians 15 says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It can't, that which is corruptible cannot inherit incorruption. And so what happens is we are going to receive a glorified body which is to say, Do you understand right now? 
Though our souls and spirits have been gloriously saved and have been transformed and we are new creatures in our souls and spirits, do you understand there's still something left on this salvation? The fullness of our salvation has not yet taken place. Go, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. And this won't take us long. Romans chapter 8. And let's pick up in verse 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. He says, oh, let's do it, 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be, check it out, glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, that is why we're living in these earthly bodies, and not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now watch this. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, now listen. Now that we have been born into God's family, He calls us sons of God, daughters of God. And He begins to talk about us who are sons of God with an earnest expectation in us for the full manifestation of what took place in us when we became sons of God. Now, as I'm explaining that, have you ever experienced this earnest expectation that he's talking about here? You say, well, what does it mean? Check it out. For the creature, verse 20, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in, in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, we were all born into this world spiritually dead, and through what Christ has done, we have been made his, his children. But there is a glorious liberty. Listen. And we've experienced a glorious liberty already, but we have not experienced the fullness of that glorious liberty that God intended for us to have and that we will have. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves Grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Now, now listen very, very carefully to this. If you're a true child of God, you are living right now in, a, in an unbelievable strain that is described for us in Romans chapter 7. Man, our spirits want to obey God. But is there anybody here that's not like Paul? It says, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's the stuff that I end up doing. Anybody here not, not in that strain? Hey, we all are. And that strain that he talks about in Romans chapter 7, he's commenting on in chapter 8 and saying... That strain is this. We're still trapped in this body. It hasn't been glorified yet like your soul and your spirit. You still live in this body, and that body just keeps wanting to keep you down here. And so you know what happens to the part of you that has been glorified? That part of you on the inside, the, the Spirit of God that has moved into your spirit and brought it to life, you know what happens inside of you? You groan and travail, he says, with an earnest expectation, waiting for something to take place with this body. 
what's weird? Is most Christian men on this planet have an earnest expectation going on in their body. We call it lust. For the body of another human being. When he says, what sons of God do, is they groan within to get out of this stinking thing. Not to have it gratified. The gratification that we're waiting for is something that's called glorification. When we receive the full manifestation of our salvation. When we're released from this stupid body, man. And you know what? In Revelation chapter 19, we have seen the full manifestation of our salvation. And so you know what we do? We say, Hallelujah to you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He says, Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. You see, that's what makes this such a great event. It's because, man, when this takes place, there is going to be, y'all, a whole new level of praise because our salvation has been fully realized. It has been fully exemplified. It has been fully manifested. And as we await that, it ought to cause us now, y'all, to praise an expectation. And you know what happens? That praise for the expectation of what is going to take place is going to cause a groaning and a travailing within for God to bring His day on. So we will praise Him in His fullness. Oh God, would You, would you help this Lord to be more than... More than Words of a sermon. Oh, I, I would hope that there would be no believer here that would hear these truths and be lulled because they know them. Lord, may this put a passion inside of us for these truths to be lived out in our lives where our life is all about what your book is pointing to and that we genuinely experience what it means to to pray for your kingdom to come because there is a passion that burns inside of us for you to get the glory that you deserve and will not receive until your kingdom comes. And oh Lord, would you teach us what it is to groan and travail awaiting the redemption of these bodies that day when we come back to these our old stomping grounds uh, the, this, this earth where this body caused us so much grief may we long for that day when we come back to this planet in a glorified body free to give you the praise and the honor and glory that you alone are worthy of. May that burn as a passion in every single person that's here today that knows you as their Savior. And believer in Christ right now, would you talk to God about what He's talking to you about? And those of you that are here today that have never entered into this relationship with God that we've been talking about all day, you're still housing a, a dead spirit inside of you. Today, the Lord Jesus Christ would love to take your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west 
He'd love to move into that dead spirit and by His Spirit bring it to life so that you can begin to have the love relationship with Him that you were intended to have. And today, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, we'd like to invite you to respond to His command to repent and to come to Him. And we would love to be able to to talk to you about that. Our our pastors are going to be up at the front of of this room, up by the, the front doors on either side, positioning themselves there so that for those of you that God is drawing to Himself today, so you have a, a place to go, a place where someone can begin to show you from God's Word how you can enter into that relationship with God today. Oh, but listen, if He is speaking to your heart, would you respond? Hey, not for us, but first and foremost for God's glory's sake, and secondly, for your sake for the sake of your eternal destiny. The Bible says today, 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 if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart. Nobody's going to make you do anything, coerce you to do anything, but we would love to be able to take an open Bible and show you today how you can enter a relationship with God. And Lord, I want to ask specifically for those folks today that... <clears throat> that don't know you or, or are not assured if they, if they do. I pray that this would be the day of their salvation. Lord, give them the courage to be able to, to step out, to respond to our invitation in your command to repent, to turn from our life and our way to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.